Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. Today is a very special episode as I am joined by a unique co-host. Today, I'm joined by Marbeth Skorzynski, who also happens to be my mom, if the last name did not clue you in. She's the author of Plague of Lies, part of the Rose Trilogy of books, and uh, she is an amazing person, amazing mother, but also has a lot of background as a literature teacher. Because my mom's a literature teacher, I brought her in for this conversation that we're having with today's special guest. Today's guest is Daylene Joy Fisher. She is the Assistant Provost, Dean, and Associate Professor of English at Oklahoma Wesleyan University. She's the co-author of Academic Writing and Emerging Scholar. But today we're talking about her newest book, which is called Resisting the Marriage Plot. In InterVarsity Press's latest volume in Academic Studies in Theology and the Arts series, literary scholar Daylene Joy Fisher explores the work of four beloved female novelists, Jane Austen, Anne Bronte, Elizabeth Gaskell, and Mary Wollstonecraft. Each of these authors, she argues, appealed to the Christian faith through their heroines to challenge cultural expectations regarding women, especially in terms of marriage. Although Christianity has been far too often used to oppress women, Fisher demonstrates that in the hands of these novelists and through the actions of their characters, it could also be a transformative force to liberate women. We're diving deep into history and literature today. If that doesn't sound interesting to you, I'd encourage you to press through because Daylene does a really fantastic job breaking this down and keeping it at a ground level for us to understand exactly how uh, these women like Jane Austen or Mary Wollstonecraft subverted the cultural expectations of women at that time through their writing. This is a fascinating conversation, and I would really encourage you to pick up a copy of Resisting the Marriage Plot. There's a link in the show notes of this episode, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. All right, let's get into this episode with Daylene Joy Fisher. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. Daylene, thank you so much for joining me on today's show. Happy to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you on the show. And while this isn't uh, exactly a typical interview for the show, I think it is helpful to have conversations like this to understand 
you know, where a lot of our thought processes and understandings come from. And when we think of, you know, 18th century or 17th century literature, we don't technically think of, you know, liberating feminist ideals, you know, that doesn't come to mind for most people, but you'd kind of argue that there's a lot to be found in in this period. What what drew you to you know this kind of study in the first place? Yeah, it's a great question. Well, first of all, I am a, a only girl in a family of five. Um, I have four older brothers, and I was raised actually in the Wesleyan tradition, which is very pro woman. Um, so I was actually raised in a home with these guys who did the dishes and <laughs> were best friends and. Um, they, they were all very, very close, but I, I really had a chance to just like watch how they navigated, um, manhood. And I was younger than all of them. They're really great brothers. And actually begin my very, um, you know, the acknowledgements with a shout out to them of just like what great examples they set for me. And so what really shocked me is when I left my um, family of origin and went into the world to see kind of how the, you know, the idea of the patriarchy was a little bit difficult. Some conversations that I had with different um, people along the way led me to think that, hey, there's something to the idea that men are sort of suppressing women because I personally didn't feel that growing up. Um, I remember when I was a freshman in college and it wasn't at the university where I'm teaching now, even though I did ultimately um, graduate from here, I mentioned to a mentor, a male, that I was wanting to eventually go on and get my doctorate someday. And he said, well, that's a really, you know, you might not want to do that. Men don't really go for women with higher ed degrees. That's going to make your life really difficult. Um, and so I, when I did eventually uh, go on and, and work on my master's degree, which wasn't actually until I had had my children, um, I went into English lit and English Lit is very, you know, known for feminist studies. So I studied all of the very, you know, down with the patriarchy type stuff. And, but what I actually noticed in there is that there was a pushback against that. And when that was often coming from women and some men as well, but when you failed to acknowledge the good work that was done by women, in pushing back against that, then you're not giving the women the power and agency that they actually had in that process because we didn't get from where we were with in Milton's age, right? Or like through the 1700s to where we are now without women being involved in that process. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just started realizing um, after I finished my master's degree that yes, while there has been a lot of oppression of women, there's also been a lot of opportunity for women to step into the process and push back against that in really positive ways and sometimes in subversive ways, um, in ways that weren't obviously apparent at the time, but were very effective. And so I just wanted to explore that. And I, you know, we can talk about this in more detail later, but having a relationship with God first above any other human relationship is very empowering. Mm-hmm. Male, female, you know, power, powerless, it doesn't matter. Right. Um, that's where we want to land at the end of the day. And I, and I noticed that that was happening with some of the heroines that the authors were writing. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I know you said that they subverted kind of the cultural norms and expectations of that time. Um, you know, who was the first person that you studied where you really saw that, where you saw someone, you know, 
kind of subtly, not so subtly if you're reading it with this understanding in mind, but enough to slip by and get a book out there. Um, you know, who's the first person you saw really subverting the cultural expectations and, and norms in a powerful way? Well, I, I guess I would say, I don't know that I saw this on my own, but that scholarship very clearly points to Jane Austen mm-hmm. as a big turning point simply because she was writing at a time where, you know, she was outside of this marriage plot, if you will. She had multiple, you know, marriage offers and turned them all down. Um, I don't know if people are aware of that, but she very much chose singlehood. um, And so she was a great observer. And around the time that she was writing her novels, the idea of marriage was actually shifting from a financial transaction Mm -hmm. to a companionate ideal. Right. And so at that time, she was talking about this companionate ideal with a lot of really heavy sarcasm. I always tell men, like, if you think you don't, you wouldn't like Jane Austen, you're you're probably wrong. You should try it. <laughs> and in fact, I told my sons, I have two sons, like, please, like you can't get married until you've read Pride and Prejudice. Um, and I'm not necessarily one of those people who just think that it all begins and ends with Jane Austen. You know, she's very much a realist. But she writes rather sarcastically, and she's quite biting mm-hmm. about the idea that marriage should just be this, number one, a financial transaction, and number two, where we have this male who sort of gets everything he wants. Mr. Darcy doesn't get to just say, hey, you know, you're really beneath me, but I'll offer you all of this anyway, because I love you. And so the, obviously, you're going to love me. That's not actually how it works in the novel. Mm-hmm. And for a, a female um to write in such a way. And by the way, not with a pseudonym either. She's writing under her own pen name. Um, I mean, it's her name. She's not using a pen name. That's quite, that's quite subversive and it's subtle. And actually um, many commentators at the time noticed the subtlety with which she wrote her novels was so much more effective than a sermon. And I, and I write about this in the book that, um, you know, Hannah Moore writes this very, very instructive novel called Colobs in Search of a Wife. And a Colob is an unmarried bachelor. Hmm. And it's very condescending in my in my opinion. I mean, um, and it's just like, here's this ideal woman and here's all the ways not to be an ideal woman. And then here's what a man should be looking for. It's, so it's kind of like a, a, a narrative to go along with a conduct book of what a proper woman is supposed to be like. And Jane Austen sort of rejects that and more subtly writes like, hey, what does a real woman look like? Who's like, sees things incorrectly. And, and that's one of the best things about a Jane Austen novel is that, um, you know, Elizabeth doesn't see things correctly. She does misinterpret right. Mr. Darcy. And so we get to see this heroine who like develops over time. And so that's where I saw some of that pushback mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, the resistance of the marriage plot and her characters are very, very moral. They're fitting in with these like Anglican idea ideals in terms of how they behave. And um, so that would probably be one of the most obvious ones. Yeah. And yet also, she also points out that things that are being presented as moral are actually immoral. Right. And she does that quite often. She does it very, very well. Yeah. I love the fact that she brings up the entailment issue it's in your face you can't escape it i mean it's like look at what you're doing to your daughters you Mm -hmm. are basically putting them in a form of prostitution just so you can hold on to your land what is that really saying about the moral men 
of our families, these men that we trust are our fathers. Mm-hmm. You know, when her father mourns about the fact that, you know, he at one time wanted to put aside money so he could marry his daughters off to whoever he wanted, but he just never got around to it. There's really kind of a slap there. It's like, oh, look, you know, even our fathers aren't even as much as they love us, as much as they care for us, as much as they enjoy having us in the house, they're not preparing us for our future. And we cannot prepare ourselves for the future in this landscape unless we're mm-hmm. willing to not live in the gentry. We we depend on brothers to support right. us. Right. Yeah. And yeah, and she's writing this um, after, I mean, in chronologically after Mary Wollstonecraft had very famously compared marriage to legalized prostitution. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you bring that up. That if marriage is only just a means by which women can be physically secure, if they're lucky and and happen to end up with a benevolent husband, then they have some physical security. And she says for at least 20 years of their life. So you just have like this period of, Hey, if I happen to marry this, a nice man, I can have a roof over my head. And, you know, Charlotte in Pride and Prejudice obviously makes that choice. And it's, it's really quite quite bad. Um, and so there's a lot to talk about in terms of like what the church had to do with that. And, um, you know, but that would be, I think Jane Austen is the very obvious, um, first person to sort of push back against that. Okay. Well, we have to ask, I have to ask two questions about Jane Austen. And one is (laughs) what do you think her father felt about her pushing back like this since he was a pastor? And she was criticizing exactly the kind of thing he would have been promoting. Well, I don't really know what the conversations were around the house because, you know, the, the upset of <clears throat> the Anglican denomination at that time, you know, there was the, the huge evangelical movement mm-hmm. that's happening at that point. And there's a lot of evidence that points to sympathy within the Austin household toward the evangelical movement, which is just simply a reform within the Anglican communion, where it's not just about being a part of, um, you know, the English society of that time and being, you know, an extension of the government, but actually, you know, William Wilberforce talks about this revolution in manners that has to begin with the transformation of the heart. Mm -hmm. And so I actually think that Jane um, and her sister had access to the library. And that's one of the really interesting things about all of the novelists, not every single one, but the novelists that I chose for this study, for the most part, had actually a clergyman who was part of the conversation that I don't know disagreed. I mean, I I don't know that that might not be, that might be why she didn't end up marrying. Maybe her family was very supportive of, hey, you don't have to do this. You know, so she was watched out for and and wasn't necessarily married off. Um, and I don't know that the church or everybody within the church was, in fact, my book argues quite a lot that many within the church were very um, supportive of this change mm-hmm. because it had become so corrupt right. um, because of the entailment, as you mentioned. So um, I, I, I have a sense that she was actually rather close to her father, or at least there wasn't animosity there. And which is the case with, you know, several of the um, authors that I write about other than Mary Wollstonecraft, whose father was actually quite abusive to her. Yeah. It's a shame. Yeah. Okay. Second question. We got to talk about it. What is the deal with the Lydia storyline? 
that <laughs> it's so important that they get her married off after she has gone through basically a child abduction and molestation. And yet to save her, they have to marry her off to her abuser. Right. Well, it just comes out of nowhere. And you're like, okay, with everything else you're teaching us in this book, Jane, why did you just throw Lydia to the wolves? Are you just saying that some people just don't deserve to be protected? Or was Lydia just, you know, exactly what she was presented as a flighty, a sinful little child that needed to be gotten rid of? So they wouldn't be an embarrassment. Right. Well, I think that it's not necessarily Jane Austen's endorsement of, but more her reporting of this is how it works. Because without Lydia being married off, the girls are ruined. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, and everybody in the family is going to have to basically be married off and and prostituted, so to speak, to anybody who will take them. And so um I think it's always a little bit tricky in literary studies. And I have to be careful with this because, you know, I chose all these authors who identified as Christ followers. They're, they're, they're professing Christians and yet not every character and not every scene would necessarily comply with what they would see as a good thing. I mean, I think it's very clear with Lydia that that's something that the narrator is grieving you know, that this is happening. What's really interesting is in Ruth, the Elizabeth Gaskell novel that I write about, the exact opposite happens. Um, Ruth, the main character of that novel, actually is seduced by a much older man, gets pregnant, and then ultimately doesn't marry her seducer. So okay. in a sense, um, you know, Lydia is kind of falling prey to this Byronic hero narrative, you know, like this bad guy that marries this girl and somehow he becomes reformed. And then that just kind of falls away as we move on um, throughout the, throughout the novels that I've chosen, because I, and there's a reason why I didn't choose Pride and Prejudice isn't the main, like I focus mainly on Mansfield Park, which is a very different, um, a very different outcome than Pride and Prejudice. Mm -hmm. So my favorite is, is still persuasion. I love persuasion. Mm -hmm. And I love the fact that she points out, look, just because you trust the people in your life to give you good advice, it doesn't mean they do. You have to be able to use your mind as well. Yeah. And that, yeah, it seems odd that that would be mm -hmm. super revolutionary because we're so far past that, but it really was at that point in history for women, especially because you feel for the main character, you really feel for Anne Mm -hmm. because she lost so much of her early young life being happy because she believed that what the neighbor wanted, that the neighbor who was guiding her, you know, Mm -hmm. as it was, was telling her the truth. This is somebody she respected and loved and cared about. It was the second mom to her. And yet the advice that she gave her was, um, culturally correct, but absolutely wrong. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I just, I love that book. That's a great, great book. Yeah. And I think that's the thing, the work that the novel is supposed to do, which is just to push back against some of those cultural Mm -hmm. um, expectations. And that happens really well. Just talking about, I'm sorry, Eric, talking about pushing back though. I I just want to make this really clear for any teachers who are still out there in Christian education. Take a look at your literature books, because I know that when I was teaching, Jane Austen didn't exist in those literature books. Neither did Mary Shelley. 
None of these authors did. Uh, the only reference we had to Wollstonecraft was in the history book, and she was not presented as a Christian. She was instead presented as anti-Christian, mm-hmm. anti-church, anti. Mm-hmm. She was a raving feminist who hated men, and that is absolutely not true. So do your due diligence as a teacher. It's really important. I got to the point where I started writing my own lit books because yeah. they had no women in the lit books, and it just really infuriated me. Yeah. You know, so yeah. So my, my graduates eventually, once I got my feet wet and understood what was going on, they read, they watched Pride and Prejudice actually. And they read, um, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. I only had limited time. I mean, I, there's only so much yeah. I could do here. And so the six hour Pride and Prejudice, I, it's so close to the novel. I'm like, guys, you know, it'd be really yeah. easy to read the novel if you watch the movie, but we've got limited time here. We've got to get going here. So I, I really pushed for them, for my students to read women authors, because honestly, I felt like I was trying to save a sinking ship here. And that's basically what it was. Eventually I had to just leave the ship, you know, it it wasn't going to happen. So go ahead, Eric. (laughs) Well, we keep, we keep circling the conversation of morals and cultural norms, expectations, and even in different facets of culture, like within the church, you know, even in Christian education, you know, the way that some of these authors are presented. And then you have obviously characters in the book. You talk about the Anglican church, you talk about the responses there. And there's, there's definitely a level of critique against Christianity as not being, you know, pro women that um, you see that come up even, even with, you know, some Christian authors, you know, female authors are writing books and and talking about this and debating this and, you know, where the church has failed to represent women well. Um, but I'm kind of curious, like when you, when you look at this, I'm always fascinated when two people are saying they're informed by the same thing, we're both informed by scripture and you have, you know, the patriarchal structure saying it's informed by Christianity and by scripture. And then you have these women who are revolutionary, especially in their time, but even still now, sadly, because of how slowly things change. And they're saying they're informed by Christianity. Um, You know, how are these two sides both coming away from the same document and, you know, approaching this in completely different ways? Because one would say of the other side, okay, you're misinterpreting and creating your own thing out of it. Sure. Well, I think that to answer your question, I would like to go back just a little bit and, you know, just to bring it back to the book a little, um, I start by spending a lot of time talking about John Milton, right? And one of the really interesting things in some of my research is that if you go back in history a bit, the Protestant Reformation, and I think this is, this is really important, the Protestant Reformation, obviously, I'm a Protestant Christian and, and very supportive of that. But one of the really odd things that happened during that time was prior to that, you know, there was a man and a woman, and then there was this priest who was outside of that marriage and in order to like provide some, like a woman could go to the priest if there was issues within the marriage. Mm -hmm. And that priest had some authority over what happened in that when the priest is removed and there's just local church communities at that point. And obviously, this would have been much more systematic eventually um, than what we have now. But 
it really turned into the husband. It's like a perversion of the one flesh doctrine, um, Ephesians 5, the husband being the head of the home, but almost in a priestly position as opposed to just a husband position. And when your husband, you know, replaces Christ as the high priest, that gets really, really dangerous. And so I don't necessarily, I'm not pushing it back against the biblical structure of personally of marriage and, you know, how we would interpret that. But there's a big difference between a biblical understanding of mutual submission, right? Mm -hmm. Versus um, the husband being the mediator between God and woman. And that's where I go back to Milton. So Milton takes the Genesis narrative, which I mean, we could talk, and this isn't my area of specialty. So I would be loath to dive too deeply into that. Um, you could talk to like Dr. McNall about that a mm. little bit more, but um, you take this very, very short biblical narrative about the fall of man and, and, you know, the fruit and, you know, Eve eats it. And he's taken that very, very small portion and Milton made this beautiful, it, it's a piece of literature that's based off of a very small portion of scripture mm-hmm. that could very easily be interpreted by many different people, several different ways and still be biblically orthodox Hmm. and not be heretical in any sense. Okay. So, um, the fact that Milton wrote that narrative and Eve Eve was so culpable, it just kind of became this, this cultural backdrop Mm -hmm. for a lot of the way women were viewed. So you have that. And then, I mean, I don't think we can it's like we think about Shakespeare a lot, but then there's Milton. It's kind of like Shakespeare and Milton and Chaucer, maybe, you know, in that early period. And Chaucer is just kind of like the everyman guy. Like he's the he's the author of the people, you know, and, and Milton represents the Christians. And Shakespeare is like, you know, also for the people, if we're being honest, but also the highbrows. And Milton just really perverted that. So you take that cultural conversation about just like women are naturally evil and in my book, I write about this. And actually, there's been lots of good scholarship done on this um, before me. Um, but Eve is even described as her her ringlets as being wanton. You know, like, that's like, what? <laughs> and, you, you know, just needing to be tamed. And this is before the fall. And so it just sort of paints women as this dangerous, in this dangerous spot of, you know, they're, they're dangerous. They're going to lead us to sinfulness. And we're now spiritually the head of the home. So we have to just keep that, that down. And, and I mean, it's not hard to see how that plays out. Right. Because I mean, obviously women are, I mean, we are a temptation to each other. (laughs) That's part of what it means to be a fallen, you know, human, like, like we have lusts and temptations and, um, but to cast blame the other direction, as opposed to take responsibility for our own thoughts, actions, feelings, what we do, that's where it really went wrong. Right. And so when the church kind of moved the priest away from the home, the man is elevated in this position. And then English law comes into play, you know, Blackstone writes, men and women are one flesh. And in the English law, the one flesh is the man. Hmm. And that's scary. So it's it's not just, hey, we're coming together as one biblical, you know, unity in marriage in order to worship God. 
but we're coming together as one. And the woman is just, you know, like, we're just going to X her out of the equation altogether. She's no longer, she's a non-person once she's married. And that's what gets really, really scary. And it's very difficult to break away from because nobody wants to give up power. It's just not a thing. Well, well, it's like uh, I was reading Vindication of the Rights of Women and it talks Mm -hmm. about keeping women as children. And and I've talked about for a long time and and prideful me thought I had figured something out that was figured out, you know, uh, you know, two, two centuries ago or two. uh, Yeah. And it was, uh, you know, I had always said it felt like in a lot of Christian circles, you know, there was, you know, you belong to your dad and then you get married very young and then you belong to your husband. And it's a transfer of ownership from one to the other. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you see this, this is not a new problem. <laughs> this isn't something that's just come about. Um, it's something that that was there from the beginning. It's interesting. Again, this is why I like having these conversations. There's so much of that context of how this was interpreted and how much, right. how much literature even can influence our understanding of theology or put us yeah. through a lens in which we see everything else. That's, that's really interesting. Yeah. And I think it's important to remember that like that idea that you, that you had and that you recognized as you're reading Wollstonecraft and she calls it perpetual babyism, Mm -hmm. I think, which I think is a a interesting word Um, that that's, that wasn't just like in theory, Mm -hmm. that was an actual reality legally. If you get married and I mean, Wollstonecraft and and actually the author that I write about is, is uh, Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley's mother. Mary Wollstonecraft, right? Um, and she wrote this unfinished novel. It's called Mariah, and she she died before she was able to finish it. Um, but it's the subject of um, my first chapter, or maybe it's the second chapter in the book. Um, but yeah, there's definitely some messiness there when you leave your father's, the protection of your father's home. And then you go to this other man, but then when you go over, because your money goes with him, then everything that you owned, your, your, uh, the way I put it is like my grandmother's wedding ring that came with me now belongs to my husband mm-hmm. and my children. And this is where it gets so heartbreaking and so sad. Our children belong exclusively to our husband. Right. So in, in Mariah, she writes this fictional narrative that's actually based on a lot of real types of stories because I've read many, many case studies of women and, you know, it was impossible to get out of an abusive relationship. So the, the story is of a young girl who goes into this marriage to, to seek protection because she has no other alternative, um, but to be married. And he, you know, immediately starts having multiple affairs. He has babies outside, side of the marriage, Um, He actually tries to prostitute her to like give her to one of his friends. And she eventually is just like, I can't put up with this. She has a baby. And because she's sort of freaking out, he institutionalizes her and sends her to like a a madhouse is is what it's called in the novel. And it sounds fantastic and sensational. And, and, you know, you might go, that doesn't seem like that would really happen, but it's actually those kinds of things did happen. Um, And she couldn't leave. And, um, you know, I, I write about Anne Bronte and she writes a novel about a woman who does leave. And that was actually based on a real life situation that her dad, who was an Anglican um, pastor, um, 
had advised a young woman who was married to run away with her baby. And it was an illegal act to do Mm -hmm. that. Um, So there's a lot of precedent, like historical case studies of women who just like, they're simply trapped once they get married and, and there was no recourse, no, no way for them to, to leave that. So what I noticed when I was writing and reading and researching about this, however, is that in a lot of the novels that I was reading, women found little, you know, little tiny places to have their own agency. They didn't have physical agency, couldn't physically act on their own behalf. They didn't have financial agency, could not make their own financial decisions. I mean, this is worse than it was during medieval times because in medieval times, women were taking care of things while their husbands were off you know, fighting battles and they were like the mistress of the estate. Now everybody was just there and they lost all of their control, right? So in that case, um, these women were finding little footholds in the novels where they had what I call spiritual agency. Mm-hmm. And once you once you understand what spiritual agency is, which is me plus God, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. My husband can't be involved in that. My, I, I'm not saved through my my spouse. You know, he doesn't. Um, we can pray for one another. We can mediate for one another. We can support one another. But I've I just noticed in these novels these women making subversive decisions, and they were making those decisions because they had this. The authors were writing in their heroines this idea that their women had this relationship with God, and that relationship with God would then open up for them just even like this creative. And to go off of Dr. McNall's, like this perhaps mm-hmm. idea, like what if, what if I just did the right thing and I have to operate to do the right thing. I actually have to be outside of English law, right. but being outside of English law, but being within God's law, it's a higher law. And therefore I can take these heroic subversive actions to change my situation. And having that written in fiction then kind of creates this this genesis of thought for women within culture to go like, Hey, what if, what if I just made this small change? No, perhaps I could do this other thing slightly differently than what I'm being told I have to do. And and there could be some, some good in that. So I, I do see that, that in the novels that these women were writing, this opportunity for change was just opened up in the tiniest way because of spiritual agency. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, you you kind of alluded to Tenet of Wildfell Hall, but it should be like automatic reading for everybody. But, uh, well, not everybody, but it's a great, great book for showing both the male side and the female side. She wrote it as um, in two parts. One is completely the man's point of view. The second part is completely the woman's point of view. She was a woman writer who published under a man's name. And the whole book is about the duality. You know, she, in the first chapter, she goes through several different instances where she's like, okay, let me show you both sides of this. Let me show you both sides from everything from my mom wanted me to go out and take risks, but my dad wanted me to be a gentleman farmer. And then he says, Mm -hmm. this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to go take risks, but I ended up being a gentleman farmer. But it's like that with the whole chapter, she just goes through duality, duality, duality through the whole thing. 
and you're not supposed to know really who the author is when you're reading this. Right. But when she writes as the woman, she is so strong. And so she becomes fearless. She isn't fearless to begin with. She's actually a very weak, um, was raised according to the culture of the day. She was raised as a um, Bible reader and as a churchgoer. And she ends up getting married to a man that people say, eh, he's probably not the best guy, but she's, he is everything that has been presented as what you're supposed to look for in a good husband. He's wealthy. Mm-hmm. He's in the gentry. He's, you know, handsome, he's athletic, he's a hunter, he's got a great personality. And then she marries the guy and discovers that he's an abusive alcoholic. And at that point, she has to start putting up walls and is told you can't do that as a Bible believer. You can't do that as a godly woman. And even the man who's abusing her is telling her, what are you doing? You're supposed to be, you know, submissive. Mm-hmm. What are you doing? Mm-hmm. And it's not until she has to rescue her son and herself that she finally says, I cannot in good conscience as a Bible believing Christian woman, mm-hmm. put my son through this. So I have to pick up and I have to leave. Yeah. And I mean, it just, that was probably the most subversive, subversive book ever written for this era where mm-hmm. a woman just packs everything up and says, I'm out of here. You're not a moral person. Right. I am. Mm-hmm. So bye. Yeah. Well, it God is interesting. <clears throat> yeah. That's an, it's, it's such an interesting novel and in the beginning of a novel, I believe her aunt does give her a little bit of a warning. Like, are you sure? Mm-hmm. And then she says, it's going to be my pleasure to recall him. Right. And so I think that that's one of the themes that's kind of pushed back on uh, against. And I mentioned this earlier, this idea of the Byronic, the Byronic hero, this bad guy that the mm-hmm. good girl comes in and rescues. And by my goodness, and this is the really weird part about it. Women had this a double bind. It's like this um, contradiction um, where on one hand, they have zero financial agency, right? Mm-hmm. Zero legal protection. I guess zero is a little bit, you know, not accurate, but very little um, protection. And at the same time, there's supposed to be these wonderful spiritual like lights that when mm-hmm. a man marries this wonderful spiritual light, then he just becomes enlightened himself. And then he becomes this great person. So she's fallen victim to that narrative. And right. what's sort of cool about like the books that I picked is like the women don't do that. Their Christianity actually comes in a form of resistance, which I argue is a higher form of understanding than what's happening culturally. Um, than what's happening even within the church sometimes, although I think it's really important to know that like in the Anne Bronte novel, that again, her father was very, very pro women. I mean, he had all these little girls and, you know, he did send the girls off to boarding school. Two older sisters end up getting sick and dying, but he brings everybody home. He gives them free reign to their library. He lets them run about the moors. Mm -hmm. Um, It's actually their son, Branwell, who's kind of the one that's falling apart goes to the bars and, you know, he's drinking all night long and his dad literally has to sleep with him in his bed. So he doesn't burn himself um, to the ground and in his sleep. Mm -hmm. And so um, Patrick Bronte, this Wesleyan pastor is just like, so excited for his women. And and Elizabeth Gaskell wrote a biography of Anne Bronte and she actually painted 
the father is very harsh and um, hard, but that's not, the evidence doesn't actually point to that. It actually points to the fact that he was hard and he was a little bit quiet, but he also gave his girls a ton of, a ton of freedom. But as you know, in the book, it's such a, it's such a revelation because the character leaves when culturally she would have been commanded to stay. And the husband actually says to her at one point, to your point, you can't hate me if I love you. Mm -hmm. Like basically I choose your emotions for you. And Anne is um, very much against that perception. She was a very sweet soul. Mm -hmm. um, And her, her poetry was just so longing for, for God. And um, I think they saw this sort of thing happen and their father being a pastor would have heard a lot of this from his parishioners and different things that they had been a part of. So um, yeah, it's a great book of just her, not just standing up for herself, but for standing up for her son and standing up for what's right. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's very, very good. My favorite. Okay. I love it too. We talked obviously about the 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 literature that inspired the time that mm-hmm. all of these women were kind of rebutting, you know, and and pushing back against. Um, but I'm curious too about the the ripple effect that came from their work specifically, and what that sparked, the changes that that sparked, coming to the point where we're at now, present day. Which which sadly, some of the things you're talking about, you know, the legal things have changed, but a lot of the practical. Yeah. stuff within, especially within some of the fundamentalist circles that, you know, we were involved in, you still see played out functionally, you know, women have no financial agency, no ability mm-hmm. to do much of anything outside of their husband's husband's order. But I, as far as the, the impact of these works, what that sparked in the way that we've changed, how we think, um, you know, how has that played out and, you know, what, you know, writing this book, bringing more attention back to it. What do you think we still have to learn um, as people in a society trying to understand this, trying to create a better world for everybody? Uh, what are some takeaways that you think still need to be waved in front of us and and reminded of? That's a that's a great question. First of all, um, Mary Wollstonecraft, you know, in late 1700s, sort of addresses the woman's responsibility in this. Hmm. So one of our earlier conversations today was a little bit about the miseducation of women. It's awesome. If you know how to cross stitch, you know, a pillow, I think Mr. Bingley talks about that a little bit and paint and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, be a musician and that's all good. And I'm not very musical. So I actually envy that, but do you know how, how to think, do you have critical thinking capabilities? Um, it's very, very important that we have a full education as women. And I think that, you know, there's still the takeaway of, is it the goal of your life to be married? And Jackie Hill Perry talks a lot about this. It's not so much about like the heterosexual gospel. It's just the gospel, you know, like the goal of your life as a woman or a man shouldn't necessarily be to get a ring by spring, if you're at a small Christian college, right? Like Mm -hmm. that's, that's still a thing. And there's not necessarily anything wrong with that. I mean, I have four, I have four children and youngest is 19 years old. I mean, like, and 
one is married and found an amazing young man at a Christian college who got married young and it's, it's great. Others didn't and that's okay. You know? And so um, I think that we still have a lot to learn in terms of elevating marriage to this place of it, it is a sacred union, but it is not a sacramental union that must be taken in order to have the grace of Christ. Hmm. And so I think that we have, um, are still struggling through some things that Paul made really, really clear in scripture that it's okay not to be in the marriage relationship and that marriage itself doesn't save you. Now I will say that being a married woman myself and, you know, my goodness, I think we're coming up on 30 years, um, this year that can't seem possible, but I suppose it is, but you know, is it, does it knock off the barnacles off to the bottom of the boat? Yes. Yes. It has to, or you're going to, to be in a hard place, but I specifically to the novels and the novelists and those conversations that started happening is just the idea that marriage itself is not a saving grace unto eternity. Mm -hmm. It's a blessing. It's something that we can, like, we love, like companionship is awesome. Having somebody to rely on is great. Um, and I definitely, I've, I made this point very clear. I'm not writing this. I didn't write this to be like pro, you know, just if it's a little bit hard to leave, or if you face a struggle, you have to get out. Those are choices that people have to make within their own marriage union, but it's not wrong if you have an adulterous, if you're in an adulterous or abusive, you know, marriage, you have the you know, it might be the right thing to do to leave. It's a, mm. it's a decision that everybody needs to make for themselves, in my mm. opinion, with the, with the help of a pastor, I think. But not always, you're not always getting good advice in those situations. Yeah. And so um, I just really worry about um, this prevailing idea that marriage is somehow a saving grace. The books that I wrote about um, have heroines who don't see it that way. They resist the marriage plot. They resist the idea that their entire identity is formed out of marriage. I'm, you know, I'm married and my husband and I couldn't be more different. We have very, very different, um, you know, goodness, career, um, tracks that we've taken, um, very different personalities and it makes it, it makes it more exciting and more fun. Um, but we've been, we haven't ever seen marriage as what's saving us. We've, we've had to turn to God, um, independently. And then that brings us together. I mean, and I know people talk about that a lot, but the book itself, I think that what these novelists did is they just kind of opened the door. And I don't know if you've ever like, I mean, I know we all have, you've been in a dark room at night and it's just black and there's a light in the hallway. And if somebody just even opens up a crack in that, in that door, then you see some alternatives. You're like, Hey, maybe I can go that little, that direction. So I think that these women just got the foot in. I think they got their foot in into some of these cultural conversations to where people were just having these sparks in their brain going, Hey, maybe, maybe there's a different way to resolve this. Mm-hmm. other than giving up everything I am in order to get married, because that's the end goal. Cause that yeah. shouldn't be the end goal. Yeah. That's huge because there's so many, I mean, me and my wife talk about this all the time is that that's how it was presented was like, you know, you're not fulfilling your role as a woman until you're married, you yeah. know, and that, and that's a, not for me, you know, <laughs> and no, not from you, but, but from, 
many within the church. That was, that was, it was when are you going to get married? And, and for men too, I mean, there was that element of, you know, a single man is not eligible to do a lot of things. You got to get married. You got to be a husband and father. And you would see people, you know, we got married young, but we'd see a lot of people get married young with that mentality Mm -hmm. or with some sliver of that. And then you realize the guy you married is not a good guy or Mm -hmm. the girl you married is, wasn't taught to, you know, think for herself or be independent. So you've, you've, you've got all these issues that start coming up out of that. And on the flip side of that, you have all of these single, especially women. And I hear this Mm -hmm. on the show all the time, single women in the church who feel like they're missing a piece or they're broken or they're not complete because they don't have a man, you know, Mm -hmm. which, you know, it's, it's just a really sad thing. And that's what I mean is like, it's when you, when I'm reading Wollstonecraft's book, I'm like, this could be written right now Oh yeah, and mm-hmm. still be a hundred percent relevant. Like I was like, this is so relevant to so many conversations I've had in the last year. And, you know, with, if you changed a little bit of the verbiage, you wouldn't know it was written in the time period it was whatsoever. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I just guess I would want to add to that is just that I think that it's very disempowering to women. And this might be where I hope my book intervenes in this conversation a little bit, not this specific conversation, but the broader conversation. Mm -hmm. Women do have agency and even a small bit of resistance can change a ship's direction. You know, I just think about it. It's like the rudder analogy that I I think about a lot in my own life. If I just make this one small change, how does that change the direction of what I'm doing or where I'm going? And so even if we can't, in this lifetime, it's almost like the, it's very biblical. Like you plant a seed, you, you push things a little bit, this direction. I have different conversations with my daughters. Um, we just need to like make a small shift. And it, it's so it's disempowering for women to just only think of ourselves as victims. And I think Mary Wollstonecraft talks a lot about that. Like, Hey, take, read, mm-hmm. <laughs> take charge of your education, you know, and be engaged in these debates and don't, Think, don't think of yourself as just somebody who can paint pretty paintings. By the way, I love painting. And, and I, this is not to say that all of that stuff isn't important, obviously, but there's education to be had. Mm-hmm. You know, there's philosophy to be understood. There's understanding scripture deeply that needs to be done. And that shouldn't just be left up to, you know, the men in the room. It, it actually, part of being a, in my opinion, and I, there's biblical evidence to this, part of being a helpmate is about being a warrior that's walking alongside of your spouse and warriors aren't weak. You know, like you're fighting, you're fighting with him. You're fighting for him. You're fighting for your marriage. You're fighting together, but you're also strong enough to recognize. I mean, my, I don't know if you guys are into the Enneagram, but my husband's an Enneagram eight. And so, you know, that's, you know, it's combative at times. It's very like, Hey, where's I have to stand up to him and that's good. And and needed. And he has to bring me back on course. And so that give and take and the iron sharpens iron only really works if you have some strength in there. Mm -hmm. And that means strength isn't just like pushing forward, but I argue in the book that it's resistance. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, putting our foot down and it's not to be petty or it's not putting our foot down in things that don't matter, but it is putting our foot down in things that have eternal significance Mm-hmm. to our souls, to the souls of our children. And I just, every um, heroine who I wrote about has that resistance. So they're resisting this 
idea that I'm only fulfilled. I'm only a true woman if I have this idyllic ending and I just empty myself 100% of who I am and just become just like the satellite. I think Mary Wollstonecraft calls it, you know, the woman is a satellite to her husband. Um, I don't think that's healthy. And I think that we still do have that depiction quite a lot in, in, in Christian circles. And um, I think it's really, really dangerous and, and too much pressure on our husbands, frankly, like I wouldn't, I don't know, maybe it's, maybe I'm seeing it wrong, but I wouldn't want to have to like just bear the brunt of everything all the time without a strong person by my side. So um, that's really important that we see that we can make that difference and we can make that change. Right. I'm going to get you back into today's episode in just a moment, but first I want to thank the sponsor that is making today's episode possible. And that sponsor is Factor. Factor creates no prep, no mess meals. You can meet your wellness goals in time for summer. Thanks to the menu of chef crafted meals with options like calorie smart protein plus and keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, no matter how many podcasts you're recording, going up and down the stairs, trying to take meetings, whatever you're doing, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. And I can say this from experience. They were kind enough to send me a couple of meals for this week, and I enjoyed one just shortly before reading this ad. And it is amazing. And with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert and stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. And these aren't meals that skimp on quality either. You've got things like filet mignon, shrimp, blackened salmon, and so much more. So if you want to try it, go head over to factormeals.com slash preacherboys50 and use code preacherboys50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code preacherboys50 at factormeals.com slash preacherboys50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Go check out Factor and now check out the rest of this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, I love the rudder analogy and it, it, it's, I'm sure it's the same for you. I get frustrated because I, I want to see these massive changes happen. And, you know, you put out a statement or a video or a, you know, a book and you think this is it, this is going to change it. Um, and it, it doesn't right away. Um, but, but I'm curious, like putting out this book, you know, you're, you're adjusting your rudder a little bit, trying to steer the ship in a certain direction. If you could see one conversation started, like if someone reads to your book and say, and they start a singular conversation that comes from this book, what would you hope that conversation would be? Wow. That is a great question. I think a big conversation that happens in the book is the idea of um, marriage is salvatory, marriage is salvation. Mm-hmm is just, 
is dangerous. And I would like us to close the door on that conversation. Um, I understand there's some biblical basis for, you know, that we can save our, our spouses and um, that sort of thing. Um, I think that's through the relationship, the lifelong relationship that you have. But marriage in and of itself, the act of marriage, the act of, you know, saying I do at the altar is not salvatory and it's not sacramental. And that was actually something that was dropped off, you know, in the Protestant Reformation. And I spent some time talking about that in my book. Um, But I just want women to know that they matter and that their relationship with God must be first above all else. And sometimes that means doing things that you're going to get pushback for. Mm-hmm. Um, and it might make mean making some hard decisions in, in your marriage. Um, and I want to be really clear that I'm not making a call for what I call indiscriminate divorce. Like this is hard. I'm getting out, mm-hmm. but just, you don't have to choose to persist in an, an abusive situation. And some women will, and if that's their choice and they want to, then I, again, I'm not going to belittle them by saying that's not what you should do. I think it has to be a decision, but we're not called to stay when there's genuine abuse and adultery happening. Um, so I just hope that women see some inspiration for resisting the marriage plot. And I hope men. Um, continue to champion the education, um, the ambition of women in their lives. And hope they're like my brothers and my husband who have championed everything I've done in my career, every single step along the way with zero hesitation and, and not even as setting me up as a little prize on the shelf either. Cause that happens to women a lot, right? Like, Oh, this female, I know she's doing this. And then you become like this token over here. No, that's not, that's not a thing. It shouldn't be a thing. So uh, yeah. Tif- Tiffany Bloom talks about in her book, pray tell, she calls that fogalitarianism, you know, where you've got a, a token <laughs> woman voice in, in the group. How, how can, uh, I guess I'll kind of dig deeper on that. How can men best lift up the voices of women, particularly within churches, but I mean, just culturally, I think this conversation spans all different sections of life. How can men champion the voices of women you know, without it becoming something that is just to prop up them or to, you know, uh, to make it look like they're, you know, more open-minded than they are. Like, how do you truly earnestly do that in the most effective way? And how can we best equip women to, to have platforms to talk about this? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that I once heard this analogy at a, at a, at a women's conference, actually it's been about 15 or 20 years ago, but it was good. Um, if you have a stone and that stone needs to be thrown, or you think that stone needs to be thrown, imagine that the woman that you're throwing that stone at is your sister, your mother, your daughter, your wife. And will you still throw the stone at that point? Okay. There are some very toxic men that absolutely yes, will still throw that stone. And those are the kinds of men we need to run away from. Mm -hmm. Right. But instead, I would think of those stones, and this is where my analogy departs from that, in my own family, with my own husband, with my brothers, which I feel, I understand that I'm in a unique situation of absolute blessedness, that I have that. 
they would be instead taking those stones and saying, Hey, God, want me to put that down for you? Cause I, you know, like they'd be putting the stones in the puddle for me because they had the stones. <laughs> it, it's not because like I needed to them to, or I couldn't have gotten around the puddle in a different way, but like might as well. So I think it's just a matter of saying, Hey, you're there, but we want you to get out of that circle of like toxicity because you're in a dangerous spot. And just the same way that I would give you my stone. I don't know if this analogy is making sense. <laughs> you know, you just, just treat them like a normal human being because there's dignity in that. Mm-hmm. And I never want to have like a pity promotion or a pity, yeah. you know, like a token spot at the table. Mm-hmm. Just, but, but if you earn it, you give it to them and you look at them objectively as much as is possible while still understanding. I mean, I think there are some, there's differences in, in personalities and sometimes even between men and women, but not always. I mean, and so I just think you have to be intentional. If you think that you're going to accidentally do that and that you're going to just be like, you know, because you can take that stone that you were going to throw and you could just walk away with it and drop it down, or you could use it to, to give somebody else a path. Mm -hmm. Um, so again, I think it's really important not to belittle women in that process and say, Mm -hmm. you can't make it without me. Because that's, again, very disempowering. But sometimes I think just really simple maxims like be kind Mm -hmm. and thoughtful are all we need. You know, listen, know somebody. Um, And I just love it when like my good friends and like the men in my life have like, gone on to do good things. I'm, I'm there to cheer that on, you know? And so I think we just need to be doing that for the, the girls and women in our lives. My daughter just moved across the country and, um, to a great place that's just being really supportive of her. And, um, you know, the men there have just been championing her voice and letting her speak and, and be heard. And it's just, it's really, really fun. I think that's all we can do is just be kind and don't throw the stone, but, you know, place it, place it down in a place that can be helpful. Yeah. I mean, it's not just enough to take it away. <laughs> so right. yeah. that's Absolutely. kind of where I think it lands. Well, I know we're right here at the end of our time. Um, what, did you have anything else Mom, that you wanted to ask? Or? Um, just, just a point that I wanted to make, and you, you've already made quite a lot of it. And Eric, you've, you made some of it earlier. Uh, Mary Wollstonecraft, when she wrote, she quoted a lot of scripture, like it was her second breath. It just came out of her. just so naturally and flowing in her book, Vindication of the Right of Woman. Right. And I, th- I think that is really the key. I, I know it is, but th- we have a problem in today's churches and it's not just one church. It's not one denomination. And it's not just one person in the church. It's, we have a real lack of Bible study. Mm. And getting deep into the Bible study and what the Bible actually says and, and taking away a little bit of our cultural imperative, putting it aside, reading what the Bible says with its cultural imperative, and then applying it. Um, too often, you know, this whole thing about women needing to be married and being a property of their fathers and then property of their, their husbands. A lot of people look at scripture and they say, well, that's the way they did it then. And then when you read the scripture, you find out that's not at all true, not even a little bit. Um, I just finished a study on uh, Rebecca, Mm -hmm. Rachel, 
Rebecca. And Rebecca, where God specifically made it so that she had to be the one to say, yes, I want to go and get married to this man. Right. It was not her family's choice. The servant would not leave until she gave the permissions. Right. And this was God just kind of, you know, nudging the family into what marriage was supposed to be. Love and Song of Solomon, businesswoman, godly woman. I mean, tough, strong, knew who she was, knew her worth and knew that to be at the top of her game. She wanted to be married to the king of Israel because Mm -hmm. that was the highest rank in the land and she deserved it. I mean, come on. She's the one that made all the approaches. Yeah. You know, we we talk about Ruth all the time and we kind of joke about that. But I mean, Ruth put herself in a position of uncomfortable, almost immodesty to say, yeah. look, you are the one I choose. You are the one I want to have in my life. And we need to be more um, serving to the women in our churches, especially the single women, women who never got married or who got divorced. Mm-hmm. Um or who are widowed, who now feel like my life is over. I can't do anything at -hmm. this church unless I'm teaching children Mm -hmm. or I'm teaching women, you know, and the women's studies have just gotten so ridiculously fluffy. That's what we call them in our family. (laughs) They're just so ridiculously fluffy that I, I stopped going to women's conferences after the last one. Yeah. Uh, I was listening to a woman speak and she was actually preaching and doing a great job until she got to her last point when she uttered blasphemy from the pulpit. Oh man. And I was, well, to borrow a term from England, gobsmacked. I sat there going, I can't believe she just said that. And I looked around and nobody was shocked. I don't think anybody knew that what she said went completely against scripture. She was making the point of uh, we, we are the temple or the temple of the Holy spirit. And then she said, and the temple of the Holy spirit is your local church. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. See, that's, that's the look I was looking for among my fellow women. And I'm like, okay, we have gotten so far away from basic Bible study. Mm Mm-hmm that we don't even know when blasphemy is being spoken. Um, Eric just released the other day about a a preacher saying, if you follow the man of God, it's the same as following God, following Christ. Wow. Again, that's blasphemy, but you've got people amening that. Yeah. We we have gotten so far (laughs) away from basic biblical truth. But when we look at the women from the past who have been the trailblazers, Mm -hmm. people like Mary Wollstonecraft, who says with every breath, all of these scriptural truths and just yeah. excoriates Rousseau. And every time she does, I just laugh, you know, cause like yeah. everybody looks at Rousseau as, Oh, he was such a great thinker. No, he was a sexist jerk. Stop yeah, it. Very stop, sexist. stop pushing this guy up. Like he's a great guy. Okay. Stop it. I think we really need as women to, to really embrace our roots, read the Bible, find out what the Bible says about women. Mm-hmm. Um, and how it says it, look at the whole context, not just a few verses taken out of, out of context, Correct. and then go back and read these fabulous women from the 17th and 18th and 19th century. And while you're there, read Harriet Beecher Stowe, because that woman was so sarcastically beautiful in her writing. Oh, oh yeah. She was sharp. She was sharp. And she had no time 
for Bible preachers who didn't preach the Bible, but preached their culture instead. Yeah. These were women who were following Christ because mm-hmm. that's exactly the pattern that Christ used when he was on earth. He excoriated the leaders. Yes. He went after those who didn't have a voice. Most of them women. Yeah. I think it's a fantastic point. I mean, I think it's a, it's huge actually, because like you said, Mary Wollstonecraft uses scripture, like it's second nature. It's not like it's difficult. She doesn't even meet. I don't even know if she's like working on it and thinking, you know, like we Google some, what, what has to do mm-hmm. with this idea? And I'm going to go look at all this. It's just second nature. It comes out in her writing. Mm-hmm. So while she was asking women to be more, you know, literate in terms mm-hmm. of education, we probably need to be starting with be more biblically literate as that first step. And then that's so important. And don't just, you know, it's be in church, go listen to your preacher, but then also read the word for yourself. Mm -hmm. And that really is where the revolution began for these women is with this idea of, and it's, and I, and I, and I know we're coming up on the end of our time here, but, you know, as um, the shift in education moves from just the Latin and the Greek, and then, people are learning to read and write in English and we have all these English texts. And most of the women that I write about are learning to read because they had fathers who were clergy or they were with clergy. Mm -hmm. So they had access to all of this information because many clergymen like tutored on the side Mm -hmm. as a second, like side hustle. And so they get all of that. So these women have a chance to learn more than just scripture. And that's really where things happen. And maybe our culture is more like, Hey, you're getting these college educations, but are you biblically literate? Right. And if you're not biblically literate, then that puts you in a position of vulnerability. And that's, you're absolutely right. It's so sad. Um, and I know this is much of what your show is about, but just that we're still in a place that there can be such, so much um, toxic culture that we're still dealing with. That's, that's, dangerous and um women do need to stand up to that and men need to not put up with it when they see it happening as well right. so yeah that's so fascinating yeah. um and i love that you said we're getting close to our time because i would let you talk um all day i've got no heart out but um but um no, I, I really appreciate all the perspectives and and i i encourage anybody who's listening to this one i mean be more literate in general um read a lot. Uh, it's, it's, it's wild to me, you know, even having like a, a Beth Allison Barr on the show, you know, and talking about just historical context for different things and, you know, things I'd heard for 20 plus years, then getting, you know, shredded to bits because, oh, historically that, that section didn't mm-hmm. teach that it was actually subversive. This passage of scripture was subversive to the culture at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so being, yeah. being literate and, and definitely, definitely uh, pick up a copy of resisting the marriage plot. There's a, there's a link in the show notes. If you're listening to this um, and I would say too, I mean, for men and women alike, I think it's important to be reading this stuff, getting into these conversations and understanding uh, one where you're falling victim to really bad thinking, but also if you're someone that's perpetuating it. Um, and I know as a, as a man who was taught a lot of very toxic things, uh, not by my mom, uh, taught a lot of very toxic things within the church and by youth pastors and, and heard myths about women and your role as a man, like it's important to read this stuff and understand where that comes from. Um, and so thank you so much for, for taking the time to do this. I really do appreciate it. Um, there was uh, a lot that was miles above my head. Um, but 
just, uh, just even the low hanging fruit was, was super helpful to me and, uh, and really appreciate you sharing some knowledge and insight on today's show. Well, thank you for letting me come and, and visit with you guys. It was awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was nice meeting you. Nice to meet you too. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes. And don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.